if you're extremely rich, but you don't have peace of mind, you don't have equanimity, you're in deep trouble. The money's not going to do it for you. you. You want money because... Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F word. Welcome back to the most hated F word podcast. I am glad you are with us this week again. Fascinating show today with author and journalist William Green. Before we get into the show, I have a slight favor to ask. If you have a favorite guest, show, send it to a friend, family member, colleague, or somebody who you think might enjoy it. And if you can spare a few minutes, if you could head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review, that would be fantastic. Okay, so who is William Green? Well, as I said earlier, he is an author and journalist. And over the last quarter of a century, that's right, quarter of a century, he has spent his time interviewing some of the best investors in the world. And not just on how they made money, but he's exploring in depth questions of what qualities and insights enable them to achieve enduring success. And this idea of enduring success is really a focal point for William's work. Also, As his title of his book suggests, How to Become Richer, Wiser, and Happier, Green does a great job focusing on not just the richer aspect, and he does look at richer in a different way of richer in life, meaning, and happiness, but he uses these individuals, these incredibly intelligent individuals, to see if we can borrow or learn lessons on how to be wiser and happier. We really focus a lot of our conversation in this domain. And it might sound simple or it might sound, well, yeah, if I was a billionaire, I'd be wiser and happier. I feel William does an excellent job of acknowledging that, yeah, life is simpler. There are many facets of life that are easier having a billion dollars. But he extracts, or I should correct my term there, not extracts, extract he learns and teaches us lessons about being wise and happy that really resonated with me we talk about why it was so important for william to focus on wiser and happier not just richer i think you're really going to enjoy the first part of this conversation we dive into that we also talk about the art of subtraction and how we can apply this principle to all domains of our lives we don't need a billion dollars to practice the art of subtraction And then we start to really get into the latter part of his title of his book, The Wiser and Happier, and he shares some fascinating stories from individuals such as Arnold Van Danberg and Manish Pabrai about how they really value looking back at their upbringings and looking back at their their lives to see how they can give back now that they have accomplished so much wealth in their lifetime. And both of these individuals offer us valuable lessons that we can borrow and implement elements into our lives. I just want to say again, thank you to William for writing this book. He could have easily just focused on how to be rich after interviewing so many wealthy individuals, billionaires at that. Instead, I feel like he took it a step further and really focused on the more meaningful elements that we can learn from these individuals. I hope you enjoy this conversation with William Green. Born and raised in London, he now lives in New York with his wife, Lauren, and their child, Henry and Madeline. And I just learned that Madeline sang with Bruce Springsteen, and I am extremely jealous. (laughs) William, welcome to the show. Thank you. And we have a dog called Willoughby, the world's sweetest dog. Okay. Well, welcome. William, I'm excited to have you on the show. Your book really resonated with me, and I'm going to open up with why that resonated with me. And I want to get perspective on why you wrote the book the way you did. And so as I attempt to mature and gain a deeper understanding of my relationship with money, my mind, and what really matters most in my life, 
I'm trying to become more and more clear on my priorities in my life. And as I reflect back on my journey, what got me into the finance world as a, as a financial planner, what interested me in investments, I've learned that my ego was a big player in why I want to become a financial planner. I was interested in learning how to make more money to feed my ego, essentially. I mean, we need money, of course, for our, our needs, and it does provide us some fulfillment in life. But this was going beyond that. I was feeding my ego. And I've read hundreds of books on investing, how to beat the market, but I have yet to come across a book similar to yours. You've interviewed several of the best investors in the world, some of the most wealthy people in the world. Yet, at least from my perspective, your book tells a deeper story than just how to make money and, hey, look at all these people with tons of money. Why did you decide to focus on the wiser and happier part of your book? Yeah, thank you for asking. It was a very idiosyncratic choice. And, and I remember when I was first proposing the book for Scribner, which is part of Simon Schuster, which is a great publishing house that published people like Hemingway and F. Scott Fitzgerald. I think I was pretty sure that I was most enthusiastic, most passionate about the wiser and happier part, but I kind of had to conceal it a bit. And I think I got a a note back from my editor at one point, who's a brilliant editor who's had more than 100 bestsellers, very prominent, very smart guy, Rick Horgan. And it seemed pretty clear from his note back to me that he regarded the wiser and happier part as a sort of, as a nice addition that would kind of be part of the mix, but don't overdo it. Mm. And and I, I was a little freaked out. I was like, Oh God, no, for me, that's kind of the essence of it. That's a, the absolute heart of it. I, I want to learn from these extraordinary investors, these incredible minds, not only how to get rich, but actually about how to think better, how to be more rational, and even how to live a wiser life. So that kind of haunted me a little bit over the few years. I, it took me four or five years to work on this book, and it haunted me a little. And I was always thinking, are people going to not believe me? Will they read this stuff and think, well, yeah, I can get that the greatest investors can teach you to be richer, but really happier. And I think part of the issue is that we have this association, partly in the popular imagination, having watched things like Billions or Succession, where you see these appalling, these appalling capitalists who are just absolutely rapacious and they're screwing people left, right and center. And they're all dishonest and they're all liars and end up with divorces and suing their children and stuff like that. And so... I think it's really easy to assume that all of these people are kind of miserable, hateful. But in my experience, I've spent an enormous amount of time interviewing a lot of the greatest investors over the last 25 years, really. And I think there's this elite group within that world that's obsessed with what John Maynard Keynes called worldly wisdom. And Charlie Munger, Buffett's 97-year-old business partner, in a sense is is the, the kind of patron saint of worldly wisdom. And I think worldly wisdom is about things like morality and ethics and how you deal with your partner and how you deal with failure and adversity and setbacks and public humiliation and shame when things don't go right and, and uncertainty and the fact that the future is unknowable and yet we have to make decisions about the future, whether we're investing money or whether we're deciding to move or get married or have kids. It's, it's all related. It's all about how you think and make decisions. And so for me, when I looked at the greatest investors, I was thinking, these are the smartest people I've ever met. And they're incredibly pragmatic. They're extraordinary thinkers. They're extraordinary problem solvers. They're super rational. And so I was trying to say, yeah, they've solved the problem of how to win in markets, of how to make money. But you also want to learn from them about how to think about how to solve these other problems and about how to think about what constitutes a rich and abundant life. So for me, it was all very connected. And so the, the fact that the book has resonated, thank God, with a lot of readers and that you're saying this means that somehow that gamble on my part, I think, has worked out. But it, but it didn't feel like an easy bet. It didn't feel like something that was inevitable because I knew... I knew that there would be this deep skepticism about whether you can learn anything about, about becoming wiser from a billionaire, for one thing. Why on earth would you? The fact that you just can make enormous amounts of money doesn't necessarily make you wise or happy. It just makes you a really good moneymaker. 
that was my um, slightly irrational and grandiose bet. And I'm, I'm happy to hear that at least, at least it turned out to have worked with you. So thank you, Sean. Yeah, and, and I really appreciate your answer. And to be purely honest, when I first saw the title, and, and this is my own biases as I go through my journey, I, I was like, hmm, I, I thought the exact same thing you just said. You know, life from a average, I'm Canadian, Canadian or American's perspective is quite easy because financially they can smooth out many things. But for the first few pages hooked me in. I'm like, wait, I, I can't judge this book by its cover. And I'm glad I didn't because I, I felt the authenticity when you write that I really do feel like that that was the, maybe my mind was looking for it, but I really felt like it was like, okay, these are to your point earlier, these are some very intelligent and smart people. What can we just borrow? As you talk a lot about, they borrow concepts from other investors, but what can we borrow and how they hold themselves in their life? So I, I really appreciate how you didn't just paint this life is so easy because they're billion dollars. You've actually talked about tangible things. And maybe one we can go into is time. You know, in many books, we talk about how to spend money. But I thought you talked a lot about time and what you learned from these people on how they spent their time. Maybe you can uh, chat about the, the art of subtraction that you talk about. That idea has had a profound impact on me and my own life. It's something that I've definitely learned very much from studying the greatest investors. So when I talk about the art of subtraction, what I'm really trying to explain is that when you look at the most successful people, certainly the most successful investors I've interviewed, they're pretty ruthless about sticking to what they're most interested in and pretty much removing everything else. And one person who brought this through for me very powerfully was Bill Miller, who famously beat the market for 15 years running. And he's He's a very brilliant guy, very remarkable. And when I, when I went to interview him for this book, I've interviewed him a lot over the years. I spent a couple of days with him at his home in Maryland and also at his office. And one of the things that became clear to me was that he's basically removed everything that's kind of an annoyance or a distraction to him. And in his case, this is definitely possible because he's extremely wealthy, right? It's, it's a huge advantage. So for example, he lives in this really beautiful mansion, didn't decorate it. I think he got his sister to decorate it. He got his sister to decorate his home in Florida as well. He told me that he basically hasn't been on a commercial flight in like 20 years. Like he just flies in a private plane. He said to me many years ago when we flew on his private plane 20 something years ago, he quoted Buffett saying that at a certain point, the scarce resource is time, not money. So he said, I, I don't need to save money. I need to save time. And also, he really liked to travel with his Irish wolfhound, which, which he had in those days, which weighed 110 pounds, which is one reason why he had a private plane. But he also, he told me, look, I have this family office that takes care of everything, so I don't pump gas. And he has this assistant who's really lovely, Darlene, who worked with him back when he was at Leg Mason 20-something years ago when I was first interviewing him, who's followed him. Really wonderful person who takes care of a lot of stuff. He's working with his son. He's only working with people he likes. He has no bureaucracy at his company because he now owns his own firm. He wears like jeans and a black t-shirt to work most of the day. He has a pretty empty schedule. He's really set things up so that he can just focus on the primary task in his life, which is to add value to his clients each month, to his investors each month. And so that requires him to think better than everyone else. So he's constantly reading about chaos theory or pragmatic philosophy or stoic philosophy or cryptocurrencies. And so he's just kind of this vacuum for information. He told me at one point he's, he's the largest single outside shareholder in Amazon whose name is not Bezos, other than Bezos is now ex-wife who's no longer called Bezos. And so this stemmed from his original reading of things like pragmatic philosophers like William James and Wittgenstein because he said Amazon was misperceived. Likewise, he's made an absolute fortune investing in Bitcoin because, again, he says Bitcoin is misperceived. So, again, it, it stems from his study of philosophy. So he's kind of subtracted all of this stuff that could divert him from the simple process of, of thinking, studying the markets, being a continuous learning machine, and taking advantage of other people's wayward emotion, other investors' wayward emotions, so that he can buy things when they're discounted and everyone else hates them. And 
I thought that was a really interesting model in life. Like you could see his kind of almost like brutal pragmatism in just focusing on what he was best at and what mattered most to him. And there was a wonderful story that exemplified this for me where someone had said to him, will you come and give a keynote speech at this event? And he said, um, what's the dress code? And they said, well, it's black tie. You'd have to wear a tuxedo. And he's like, nah, sorry, I threw out my tuxedo and I'm never buying another one. And I thought that was really interesting that he's not only removed a lot of complexity from his life that's not necessary, but he's deeply aligned with who he is and with what matters most to him. And it's really easy. I can, I can hear in the minds of, of our listeners at the moment them saying, well, it's all very well if you're, you know, if you're a billionaire to do that. But I actually think all of us can do this to some extent. And when I look at the other investors, he's an extreme case. When I look at the other investors I've interviewed, I think this is a really common denominator with all of them, that they've simplified their lives. They've reduced complexity because I don't think you can be an extraordinary performer at anything unless you're pretty remorselessly focused. And there's a fascinating investor I interviewed, a guy called Paul Lances, who said to me, William, I'm not an easy guy to be married to. And he said, he said basically, like, even when he goes to exercise, like, he, he sits on a Peloton, I think, the University Club in Manhattan, and he just watches videos of great investors talking on his iPad. And then when he goes to bed at night, he's literally lying in bed watching videos of great investors speaking. And he watches things over and over again. I, I, I once gave a Google talk, and I ran into Paul at an event a few months later, maybe a year or so later. And he said... Uh, yeah, I love doing Google Talk. And, you know, you're used to people sort of, sort of saying nice things to you. And you're like, oh, thank you very much. And he said, yeah, four main points. And he quoted to me in order the four main points. You could see he's this continuous learning machine. It was just, he told me that he had read Phil Fisher's book and one of Ben Graham's books 50 to 60 times. So he's kind of simplified his life. So he's a learning machine. Then he's got a very simple portfolio of maybe... 10 to 15 or so stocks. So again, it's like he's, he's, he's reduced complexity, subtracted stuff. And his time is all devoted to studying the market. That to me is really interesting. That he, he, he said to me, look, you don't get to be Roger Federer without playing tennis all of the time. And so I think if you want to be an extreme performer, if you want to be extraordinary at anything, there are sacrifices you have to make. And for the rest of us, maybe we're not going to be that extraordinary. We're not going to be that intense about it. But I still think it's a really important thought process to go through to say, okay, let me ask myself, what can I subtract? What's peripheral? What am I not so good at? What am I not adding value at? What am I not that passionate about? And so for me, part of the process has been to say, okay, there's my writing, which is really important to me. And then this kind of related aspect of sharing ideas from my writing, which means podcasts, talking to someone like you, doing a fireside chat, giving a speech, things like that. But it's all basically sharing ideas through writing or speaking. So that's a really essential part of my life and what matters to me and what, what fulfills me. There's my family. So I have a wife and two kids and my daughter. You know, I talk to my mom, who's in London most days. So there's that. There's my spiritual life, which is important to me, which includes things like meditation, which I'm a little bit erratic at, but it's important to me. That's a really central part of my life. There's reading and learning, so I'm, which is sort of related to this other stuff of sharing ideas and, and spiritual philosophical life. So there's that constantly. And then grudgingly, there's exercise, which, which I don't really want to do, but I gradually come to realize that it's a really important part of both happiness and stress reduction. And then there are friendships. And then pretty much everything else is peripheral. So you have to, I think, go through this process, whether you're a billionaire like Bill Miller or you're not a billionaire like me, I think you can really benefit from having this filter and saying, what can I subtract? What can I remove? How can I reduce complexity? And then structure your life so that you're doing more of those things that really matter to you and that are getting you closer to this destination that you ultimately want to reach. And, and so just having that clarity, you don't have to be a billionaire to have that clarity. But I think that's, that's a pretty good example 
of just one of many ways in which the greatest investors can teach you how to think better in a way that actually points you towards being wiser and wiser and happier. And also it helps you with your investing because you can see that they're, they're also extraordinarily specialized in the way they invest. They might invest just in one niche or just one type of company or just one country. Or So I think this idea of constantly reducing complexity and subtracting becomes one of those master principles and practices of life. Thanks for sharing that. And as you read your book, I really feel that your message is exactly what you just said. And it's not how to become a, the world's, one of the world's best hedge fund managers and make billions of dollars. I feel like you've done such an effective job taking these principles. And to use a word I hear you say often is cloning them to ourselves. And, and as you're talking, I feel like it's just, you're almost advocating for the Marie Kondo of our, our, our lives of like simplifying the art of subtraction. And I know even as I talked about earlier, I shared a journey of me trying to get a better relationship with my money, what matters most to me. Subtraction has been a huge part of that is understanding. And I'm nowhere near as a billionaire. That's for sure. I do come from a place of privilege. My parents were both born in Canada, had a great upbringing, but my aspirations amongst many people who probably read your book is not to become a billionaire, but I learned so many principles, like just this art of subtraction and what you just talked about. I, I, I agree with you that there's a lot of principles that we can clone from these individuals. As you were talking to, to these individuals, because you, you mean you had an opportunity not many people have to sit down with the world's greatest. Before we started recording, we, we naturally just started talking about Bruce Springsteen. You're from New York. I like yeah. him. And I was sharing an episode that I heard from him on Conan O'Brien's podcast. And he asked him, what drives you to perform night after night for 50 years for three hours sweating in the hot sun in the South or a stadium? And Conan said, I think I have a theory and I can't remember his four, but he's like, there's got to be some sort of uh, <laughs> poor relationship with your father. There's got to be some depression. There's got to be some anxiety. And there was another, there's four of them. And Springsteen's like all four. And then he went on to say that he feels like a lot of artists have some of those and their art form is a way to deal with those, those feelings inside. Not saying that that's what drives these people, but I wonder if you've started to see what drives these people because they're extraordinary. And to your point, they have to give trade-offs. I can't remember whom uh, in the book, but one talked about how, you know, he self-admitted he hasn't been the greatest father. So there's intentional trade-offs, but did you ever gather or come to, I mean, they're all different, but an overall perspective or thought what drives these individuals to keep being so disciplined? I think in many cases, it starts out, as with a lot of us, being more survival-driven. It's more driven by ego, survival, desire for respect and honor, desire for independence. So you have people like Charlie Munger having said, yeah, I just wanted to be independent. I didn't want to be subservient to anybody. And someone like Bill Miller, for example, came from a, a very, very modest background where his father was a taxi driver. And he, he once said to me that if we, if we went to Burger King for my birthday. It was an unbelievable treat like that. You know, if I remember rightly, he once told me that he made an investment very early on in the stock market and made a few hundred dollars and bought himself a car. And so the money was amazing to be able to, to use his brain to climb out of poverty. That was amazing. I think in the early stages, there is an aspect of the money and the ego and the desire to get recognized, that's powerful. And I, I've seen that in my own career, that early on you're very motivated mm -hmm. by some of this desire for respect and for people to take you seriously. And all the people who didn't take you seriously, you're like, I'll show them, you know, whether it's, you know, you're a, a parent or a professor or, you know, a boss or whatever. I sometimes find literally, I, I'll, I'll, I'm kind of sort of ashamed of this. I'll I'll be thinking about the fact that my book has done well and I'll suddenly be like, I can't believe that person didn't take me seriously. And you're like, really? Really? I'm like 53 and I'm, and I'm still like beating that old drum. I mean, it's unbelievable how that stuff kind of tugs at us and it's very hard to get rid of. But what I would say is, um, I mean, it helps if you're aware of it, I think. So at least, so at least you, know, you, you know what these forces are that are messing with your mind and your equanimity. But I, I would say when I look at these really successful investors, 
I'm writing about people whose success has been enduring. I'm not writing about people who did really well over a seven-year cycle or over 12 years. I'm looking at people who've built incredible, enduring success as investors. And I would say to build enduring success, there has to be something more than your own ego, I think. Mm -hmm. There are also people who are just so voracious and have such an endless need for acceptance and respect that maybe it never leaves them. But I'm not particularly interested in those people because they tend not to be that admirable. And mm-hmm. so I tend to be writing, I, I confess in the book that one of the idiosyncrasies of the book is that I'm writing about people I, I like and admire. So they tend to have a grander purpose. So one, one thing that I do is I start the book, maybe partly to address this concern that these aren't people with much wisdom or happiness, that they're just rapacious money managers. But, you know, I, I wanted to kind of preempt that judgment. So I start the book in India with a guy called Monish Pabrai, who's remarkable, who in 1994, began this 30-year this game where he decided he was going to turn a million dollars into a billion dollars by compounding at 26% a year and basically then is going to give all the money away. And I start going into rural India with him to visit these schools where he's dragging these incredibly smart kids from very deeply underprivileged families. He's dragging them out of poverty And so what I was trying to say is, yeah, here's this guy with this incredible ability to sit quietly in a room and wait patiently for what Munger calls a mispriced gamble and make enormous amounts of money. But he's actually using it to drag thousands and thousands of children out of poverty. So what I was trying to say is there needs to be something beyond that desire for recognition. And the, the desire for recognition is very powerful. It's powerful for me. I mean, it's, a, it's a big draw, but it's very fragile. And what I found in my own life is that you can build a lot of success in your, maybe in your 20s and your 30s. These, these numbers, these ages are very artificial. You can build a lot of success through that energy. It's like that old Sex Pistol song. It's the Sex Pistol anger is an energy, someone like that. Or, or the band that came out of the Sex Pistols. You know, it's an energy. That, that, that need for approval is an energy. It's powerful, but it's very fragile. And what I found is I, I felt like my career kind of fell apart a bit when I was about 40, partly because I think maybe it's coincidental. It was during the financial crisis, but, it's, but I think it gives you an opportunity to rebuild your life on a better foundation and to say, okay, let this not just be about ego or not just, but let it not be so, so driven by a desire for people to think I'm smart and clever and successful, all of this stuff. Let me have more purpose. Let the, you want to focus more on sharing in some way. That was part of what I was trying to convey when I write about someone like Monish Pabrai. Monish, I think, does have a deep desire for people to realize how gifted he is. And he is, he's immensely gifted. And maybe that comes from, who, who knows? I mean, he grew up poor in India. His parents went bust multiple times and had nothing. I mean, he said they couldn't pay for the next meal, basically. I mean, they, they really had nothing. So I think he wanted to climb out of that uncertainty, even though he said they handled it incredibly well. His father once said to him, I could stand on a rock naked and I'd still be able to set up a new business. So he said he saw how unrattled they were by that mayhem, which he said had an enormous impact on him. But he didn't ever want to go through it again. So to some extent, I think he wanted to come out of that uncertainty. Then also, he did very badly at school in his early years. I think he told me he came to like 160 out of 180 or something like that. And then uh, very, very low anyway. But he had very low self-esteem. And then they did an IQ test. And his teacher came back and gave them all the results. And he went to the teacher and he's like, I don't get, what does this mean? And the teacher said, it means you have an IQ in the 180s. You're basically a genius and you're not trying hard enough. And he said, sometimes you need to be told that there's something in you. And he said, for me, it was like like a horse being whipped. And I just started from that moment. So I think the fact that when he's telling me the story of his childhood, he's focusing on his sense of having low self-esteem, having done badly academically, and the pain of seeing his parents go bust multiple times and all of that uncertainty. That suggests there's some psychic wound from Mm -hmm. early on that motivated Mm -hmm. him for money. 
But then what's really wonderful is that now I'd say he's in his 50s, I guess. He's a little older than me, so probably about 55, it's my guess, 54, 55. So he's managed to transform that. I'm, I'm sure it's still there. I mean, it, I can see it. It has an enormous impact on him that Charlie Munger, who's just an absolute giant of the field and kind of one of the two or three cleverest guys in the investment business, Munger has kind of adopted him as a mentee and friend. And, and that admiration just means an enormous amount to Monish. Like that's a, that's a wonderful affirmation to see someone like that admire you so much. So I'm sure that's been hugely comforting. But then I think there's also the fact that because he's giving away all of this money to lift up other people, there's a much greater sense of purpose. And, and he has these really lovely children, Monsoon and Momachi. And when I went to India with Monish to report this book for five days, Monsoon was with us. And so we would talk a lot of, we would go to these rural schools. And I remember them talking about going to visit this guy, Ashok Kalapatra, in, at his home. And Ashok had come, I mean, all of these kids are being coached basically to take the exam to the Indian Institutes of Technology, which is like the Indian equivalent of MIT. And there are no interviews or anything. It's just raw intellect. And so, so Monish gives them one or sometimes two years of coaching through this system that he's set up to take these exams. And they have an extraordinary success rate. I mean, overall, nationally, the success rate is less than 2%. But his kids sometimes get as high as 63, 65, 70% get in. And it just sets them up because then they get hired by Microsoft or Google or companies like this. And so one of the greatest alumni they ever had is this guy, Ashok Kalapatra, that I mentioned, who I think came 63rd out of something like 471,000 people. This is a brilliant guy. I first met him in India and then later in, in America. And um, Monish and Monsoon talked about visiting Ashok. I think his father was a tailor making $100 a month. And they lived in a house that I remember Monsoon told me they had a pink shower curtain instead of a front door. And their roof was made of asbestos, but it just poured in. I remember once asking Ashok what it was like when it was monsoon season or when it was just raining heavily. And he just said it was hard. And they didn't have a table. So his mother, Ashok's mother, served chai to Monish and Monsoon on a little stool. And for Monish, those trips are absolutely unforgettable. They're absolutely essential to the happiness of his life. And I think going to see people like Ashok where they live and helping to bring them out of poverty is a wonderful thing. And I write about Ashok a bit in the book because he did so well academically. He got into one of the best IITs. I think he got into IIT Mumbai, which I think is probably the hardest to get into, if I remember rightly. And then got hired by Google, was moved to London as a software engineer at Google, then moved to California to work for Google. And it's climbing rapidly. And so when I gave that Google talk, I had lunch with him and a bunch of other guys from Google. And he was in the room. And one of the first things that Ashok did is he took the money from the first six months or so of his job and bought an apartment for his parents outside this slum. They didn't want to move far from the slum because that was where all their friends were. So it was basically right there. It was like a two-bedroom apartment with a with a roof that didn't leak and with electricity and stuff like that. And Ashok would go to Omaha for the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting, and he would sit there with Monish, the guy who dragged him out of poverty, because now Ashok is kind of fascinated by investing. And I would sit there with him and with my friend Guy Spear, who's also close to Monish. And it was just the most wonderful thing. And you would think, I, I'm kind of sentimental and mystical about these things. So I would think about this line from, from these old, kind of Jewish spiritual teachings, which is my background, where it says that if you save a life, you save the whole world. And I think what an amazing thing that Monish has taken people like this out of poverty and changed, you know, in a sense, changed the whole world. And Monish is much more cynical than I am, much less mystical, much more <laughs> rational, would say, nah, he's like, once you realize that life's meaningless, he's like, what do, what do you do? You make the world a better place if you can. You help your kids. You try not to screw them up. And then the rest of it's all a game. And, and to some extent, I think he's telling the truth. And to some extent, I think he realizes what an extraordinary, beautiful thing he's doing. And so, so part of what I'm trying to do in telling stories like that is to say, if you want to have a rich and valuable and fulfilling life, 
there has to be some element of sharing in it. So his charity, Monish's charity, is called Dakshana, which means gift in Sanskrit. But it's not clear whether the gift is to the kids or the gift is to Monish of giving. It's both, right? And so, so for me, I have to say to myself, what's my Dakshana? What's my gift? What am I going to share? Is it sharing ideas? Is it sharing stories? Is it sharing books? Is it sharing money? Is it sharing time? Is it sharing love? Whatever. I mean, those, those, are, those are some of the basic things we have to share. But I think when you see someone like Monage doing that, you say, okay, it's not going to be enough just to make the money. He, he has a Ferrari. He has a really beautiful Ferrari. He made a really big bet on Ferrari stock and he hit it big and he has a beautiful blue Ferrari. Great. I've seen him, you know, wear beautiful handmade shoes that he spent thousands of dollars on. He gets joy out of those things. We're not saying you should not get joy out of your money. But I think this points to a deep truth about what constitutes a successful and happy life. And, and so this, again, this gets back to what we were first discussing at the start of our conversation, that it's not necessarily that the greatest investors are the happiest, the most moral or whatever. It's that you look at them and you can say, ah, that's the path to happiness. It's like, yeah, I want to have the financial independence. Yeah, I want to have the respect. I want to I have people who thought that I was a schmuck when I was a kid actually think that I'm smart and successful. You know, we, we all need some degree of self-respect and respect from others, I think. But also, as you get older and wiser and evolve a bit more, you, you want those aspirations to kind of become a little more elevated, and then when you see someone like Monish helping other people and you see the joy that he gets from helping people like, like Ashok, that's had a big effect on me because that makes me think, okay, I've got to structure my life so that it's not just about me getting respect and honor. And it's not just about me sitting around thinking, oh, do they, do they think I'm smart or whatever, which I did before. And it doesn't, it fills you to a certain extent. And then at a certain period, you're just like, it, it's kind of bankrupt. It, it leaves you empty. And so, so you have to then find something beyond yourself, some, some way to help other people, I think. Not in a sort of self-righteous, sanctimonious mm. way, but because it's going to make you happier and them happier. Yeah. Wow. Thank you so much for uh, sharing that story about Manish. And sometimes we hear, unfortunately, opposite stories of billionaires and um, whether it's Trump and I, we hear, I don't even know if he's a billionaire, but anyhow, we hear people like that who are just ruthless. And I know you did not have him in your book, but sharing this story is, unfortunately, doesn't get the headlines and maybe it doesn't get the clickbait the media wants. But, you know, it makes me think of some research that was done on spending money on others really does have a large contribution to our overall well-being. And yeah, he's just doing a phenomenal job going back to his roots and, and helping out and making a difference in, in, in a lot of people's lives. And, you know, maybe that's another podcast because I want to be respectful of our time. But is there a morality that comes with having a billion dollars? I don't know. But uh, it'd be an interesting thing to, to go into. But I, I want to specifically ask you, and I, I, my mind wants to go on for another two hours here, but I want to respect your time. You're making me think a lot about when you said the start, like I talked about my start was ego and and that's we're humans psychologically that's where we got to feed that and same with these individuals but there seems to be a transformation that happens and you talked about a few in the book at the end where you uh talked about ed thorpe who said one of the most important things is who you spend your time with and then irving khan at 108 i think you interviewed him (laughs) when he said having a happy or healthy happy children and seeing them achieve things in life, something to that degree. So again, family, who you spend your time with. And then you ended up with Arnold Van Denberg, who had a similar sentiment about family and doing meaningful things. So I really like how you ended the book about this perspective of who we spend our time with. It does matter. What did you learn about that last chapter? I I believe Arnold taught you a lot about his quote, I'm the richest guy in the world in your book. Maybe you can pick one of those or what lessons did you learn from that last chapter when you wrote it? This was another thing where if we go back to that original memo that I got from my editor when I first sold the book to Scribner, he said to me, I don't understand why Arnold Vandenberg is in the book. And so one of my missions was to show here's why he's so important. And so I end the book with Arnold because and Arnold, right at the start of the book, 
the first two things I did were I went to India for five days with Monish and I went to Texas for two and a half days with Arnold Van in the book. I knew that they were hugely important figures in the book. And so I had to explain why is Arnold Vandenberg so important that I would end the whole book with him? And what I say in introducing him is if I were to pick one role model out of all of the great investors I've interviewed, out of all of the investors I've interviewed over 25 or more years, it would be Arnold. And that he in many ways embodies what it means to have a truly successful and truly abundant life. So this gets away from just pure financial abundance. And it goes much deeper. And there's a, there's a wonderful quote from Arnold where he talks about how prosperity includes everything from, from your health to relationships, things like that. He, he's an extraordinary man. And what adds resonance, emotional resonance to his story is that he started off in the worst possible place. It, in, in many of the cases, when we talk about great investors, they went to Wharton and Columbia Business School and Harvard Business School, and they're really, really smart. And, you know, many of them had loving parents and every advantage. I did as well, right? I mean, I, I'm aware that I, I started life about three feet from the, the finish line, you know, mm-hmm. and, and if I've had success, a lot of it's because of my parents and my grandparents and the schools I went to and stuff like that. Arnold had the opposite. Arnold was born in 1939 on the same street as Anne Frank in Amsterdam. And he was a Jewish kid born during the Holocaust. And the Nazis invade the Netherlands and his family basically is hidden by a Christian family called Bunts who, who built a fake wall, basically, I think in a closet, if I remember rightly, when it seemed dangerous, they would all just hide behind this wall. So Arnold spends the first part of his life with his young, his older brother, Sigmund, who is still very young, hiding with their parents behind a fake wall. And at a certain point, the parents thought if the Nazis come into the house and they start searching the house and Superman or Arnold make a noise, they're going to kill us all. We'll basically get shipped to Auschwitz. And so they make this really bold decision to get in touch with the Dutch underground and to say, how do we get the kids out of here and into hiding? And so this girl who was about 17 years old from the Dutch underground who didn't know the family risks her own life to smuggle Arnold out of Amsterdam into the countryside, into an orphanage where he was hidden for the rest of the war. So Arnold grew up thinking that his parents didn't want him, that his mother had sent him away because she didn't love him, which wasn't true. It was because they were trying to save his life. His parents were then captured because they were trying to figure out, they were trying to get news and update on what had happened to Arnold and Sigmund, who was being hidden on a, on a farm nearby. And they went into a butcher shop during an air raid warning where the siren came off and a woman working in the butcher shop was collaborating with the Nazis and reported them for being Jews. And so they, they were taken to Auschwitz. His parents remarkably survived Auschwitz and they came to pick him up when he was six and he didn't recognize them. And he said, I didn't even care. I just was desperate to get out. He was skin and birds. He said his father was scared to pick him up and hold him because he thought he would just sort of break, you know, crumble because he was, you know, he, he looked like a, like a concentration camp victim. He basically couldn't even walk. I mean, he said most of the time he would just sort of shuffle around on his knees. And so his parents take him and eventually move to East Los Angeles, to a really tough neighborhood in East Los Angeles where he gets beaten up the whole time. And he's like this kind of weak, emaciated kid. And he's like, you know, people, when, when you're weak in a place like that, you'll pray and people just prey on you. And so at a certain point, he turned himself around and he starts to fight back. And he ends up becoming this kind of fearsome fighter. He, he ends up with these really tough kids who are just, he's now, he's about 81, and they're still his closest friends all these years later, nearly 70 years later. And they still look out for himself, all, or look out for each other all these years later. And there were people who came to defend him when he was in a fight and vice versa. So when he was in Los Angeles growing up, he overheard his mother talking to a psychologist who basically said, yeah, maybe the reason he's doing so badly at school is because he's brain damaged from being malnourished as a kid. So he said he grew up thinking he was incredibly dumb. And so he was full of rage about the Holocaust and what happened. 39 members of his family got killed. 
in, in the Holocaust. It was a miraculous thing that he survived at all. He had a terrible relationship with his parents. I mean, you you would assume, oh, well, you know, they were these terrible victims of the Holocaust, and that would be kind of the simple story, but it's not simple. Life isn't simple. His father used to beat him up, and his father was kind of a very honorable, very moral guy who was also violent and used to beat him up until Arnold basically said he hit his father back, and he said, then it stopped. He had a very tough relationship with his mother, who was immensely talented and charismatic, but kind of really difficult. And so he, so he resented his parents. He was full of anger towards the Nazis. He barely made it through high school and then never goes to college and gets married to his high school sweetheart who leaves him for another, another guy. So he's full of depression for years. And he goes to this extraordinary psychiatrist. And one of the things he's talking about to this psychiatrist is he said, he's telling him this story of this 17-year-old girl who saved his life. And he's like, do not understand it. Why would this girl have risked her own life to save a stranger? And why would her father have allowed this? I mean, they all would have been killed if they'd been caught. And this guy, Dr. Ramaljack, he was called, he said, um, said it's simple. And I was like, well, what do you mean it's simple? And he says, well, for some people, their life is worth more than their principles. And for other people, their principles are worth more than their life. And this had an immense effect on Arnold. He thought, well, so... I need to live a life of principle that's worthy of my saviors. And he begins this kind of transformation that I describe in that last part of the book, where he turns himself from this rage-filled, disappointed, depressed, unsuccessful guy into this successful, loving, kind, decent, compassionate, incredibly sharing human being. And the story of how he did that is a really astonishing story because it requires you to understand that he took control of his inner landscape. He took control of his mind. And so he became obsessed, for example, with hypnosis and with self-hypnosis. And he used to hypnotize himself the whole time. He became obsessed with affirmations. And he would walk around saying the whole time when he was full of this sense of anger and rage and victimization, he would say, no, I, I am a loving person. And so he essentially rewires himself to be this loving and kind person. And at the age of something like 37, he sets up a, an investment business. He has no office, no savings, no clients, no track record. And he reads Ben Graham's books and he educates himself and he understands the idea of buying things at a discount. And he remembers that his, that his mother, who I think was called Manya, even in Auschwitz, used to trade the whole time. She was a brilliant entrepreneurial figure. And she always used to say to him, why would you ever buy anything retail? So he understood this concept of buying things cheap. And he was very disciplined. And he had these rules of thumb where he would buy cheap and he would sell when things got too expensive. And he had this kind of iron will. And he just kept going. He kept persevering. He had this, I, I talked to his son, who's a really lovely guy, who's the, the president of his company. And his son said to me once, early in his career, he was having real trouble. He was trying to sell property and stuff. And it just wasn't going well. And he said to Arnold, were you always successful? Did this come easy to you? And Arnold said to him, in those early days, he said, A, I often couldn't get out of bed because I was so depressed. And he said, B, sometimes I would just put my head on my desk and just weep. And I thought that was such an incredibly telling image of this guy who started with nothing. He started with every disadvantage. And yet he's turned himself around in an extraordinary way to build this successful business. And he, he told me recently, we were talking, he said, um, yeah, I'm about to celebrate my 50th wedding anniversary with this woman, Eileen, who just adores and who adores him. And so you see this guy who's built this incredible family relationship. You see his relationship with his son. And it's just like a really loving relationship. You see the pride that they have in each other. I remember him showing me, news clips. We're sitting in his office in Austin, Texas. And he shows me these news clips that he has from many, many years ago of his son competing in things like shotgun competitions. And at one point he had, I think, he had some leg injury that meant his leg was in a cast and Arnold hypnotized him and he still managed to win this competition. And as he's showing me these clips, he chokes up and these news clips and you realize just how much joy he takes 
from the fact that this little kid who was kind of going through a tough period and he was kind of small and weak and Arnold helped him to transform himself to become a champion athlete. And it's one of the proudest achievements of his life and really moving to him. And I remember his son saying, yeah, I was the only kid I knew who was tucked into bed every night at 18 and hypnotized by his father, like the last thing before he went to bed. And so when you look at Arnold, you think, here's a guy, yeah, he's become very wealthy. He's got a successful investing career, successful record. It's gone through difficult periods as an investor. Like it's not been, he had years and years of underperformance that were tough. But he's very honorable. He's incredibly generous and sharing. Amazing relationships, obsessed with his health. He's a, a vegan yogi who, I, I mean, at, at 80, I, I've seen him put his foot above his head, leaning against the bookshelf. And, you know, he can do those yoga poses where you sort of, you get in cross-legged position and lift up your whole body on your, on your hands. I don't know, it's the pigeon or what, what are those yeah. crazy maneuvers? I, I'm sure I'm getting this wrong. So he's healthy, he's fit, he's a role model, and he spends his whole time helping other people. And so I can't tell you how many books he's sent me over the years. So he would send me a trampoline because he was worried that I'm too lazy. So it's outside in my garden and the kids next door use it as well. It's really, it's really lovely. So he goes through life just trying to find ways to help people. So the, the reason I'm telling you this story now and the reason why I end the book with it is because I think it points to a couple of really, really important lessons. One of which is you've got to take care of your inner landscape. If you're extremely rich but you don't have peace of mind, you don't have equanimity, you're in deep trouble. And so Arnold has spent 50 years studying the subconscious mind, rewiring himself. He's very spiritual. He's pursued lots of different spiritual paths because he said to me at a certain point, he just decided he used to feel guilty as a Jewish survivor of the Holocaust studying Christianity at one point in his 20s. And he said at a certain point, he just had this, this epiphany where he said, I'm just going to follow the truth wherever it takes me. So he studies Eastern religions, he studied Christianity, he studied everything. And, and he thinks they all come back to the same eternal truths about, about love, basically. It's like, look, love is the most powerful force of all. And that, that overwhelms everything. So you get tremendous insight from him over how to take control over your mind, but also about just the fact that nothing is more important than that. That if, if you don't focus on that aspect of your life, you're going to be in deep trouble. And so, so that's the key focus of that last part, the epilogue of my book, because I'm, I'm trying to say the money's not going to do it for you. you. You want money because you want to be financially independent and secure and free. And, and that's a wonderful thing. I'm not diminishing that at all. It's really important. But at a certain point, you also have to be aware that it's about your state of mind, your equanimity. And then in addition, there's got to be this other this other aspect of sharing that we talked about with Monish, Pabrai, it's the same with Arnold. You see it with all of the happiest investors I've interviewed, that there's a deep vein of sharing in their lives. And that to me, that's had a profound effect on me because now I look at this question of equanimity, your state of mind, and I'm like, that has to be a priority. So I need to exercise because it relieves stress and it helps me and I feel better. I need to meditate because it gives me more equanimity, whether it's for you, it's walking in nature or whatever. It doesn't matter, you, but it needs to be a priority. If you're, if you're practicing the art of subtraction, it's one of the three or four or five things. It's critical. I need to build strong relationships because nothing is more important. As, as Ed Thorpe, who you quoted before, said, at the end of the day, nothing matters more than who you spend your time with. And this is, Ed Thorpe is a guy who figured out how to beat the casino at blackjack, how to beat the casino at roulette, and then how to set up a hedge fund that didn't have a losing quarter in 20 years. So when he's telling you the way you win the game of life is by focusing on things like relationships, that to me is a pretty cool clue that that needs to be one of the most central parts. If I'm going to subtract stuff, it can't be relationships. It can't be my mental health. It can't be my, my emotional equanimity. That stuff has to be important. And so what I'm trying to do in that last part of the book is just reorient a little bit for, for myself as well as for everyone else to say, yeah, yeah, I, I want to be rich. We all want to be rich. We all want to be financially independent. But why? What does the money do for you? 
Well, what does it actually do? Well, it gives you a degree of peace of mind to know that you don't have to worry about the next bill and to know that you can take care of your kids. And like that, that's ungodly important. I, I'm not underestimating that by any means and just saying all you need is love. No, you also want not to have to worry about money, which is really draining. But don't forget about the primary importance of relationships and equanimity. When I look at Arnold, he's a master of those things. And so I, I've said to him before, I said, you're not the most successful investor in the book, but I think you're the most successful human being I've met in the investing world. And he's a bit bemused by that. He's really, really? And, and that's part of his charm is that there's a kind of humility to him that he's not, he's not arrogant. He's just a kind, a kind and decent bloke. And so when you look at who you want to model yourself on, there's a lot that I see in Arnold. And I'm like, yeah, I'd like to be more like Arnold when I, when I grow up. Like that's, <laughs> a, that's a good model. And, and it's not to lionize or hero worship everyone. Every, everyone has their flaws, their quirks. But I would say you want to look at people who have extraordinarily successful lives in the richest sense of that and reverse engineer that and say, well, what, what is it? Why? Is it the money? No, nah, it's, it's not that. It's these other things as well. So he's been hugely helpful to me. Well, thank you for sharing the stories there. And uh, it's interesting that the two that really spoke to me were Manish and Arnold. And uh, I, I like how you spent a lot of time speaking to them and just, yeah, their process of thinking and the impacts that they've had. Well, your book says how to be richer, wiser, and happier. And I feel like you do such a good job cloning, to use a word I've heard you say a lot, what things that these individuals have done and I appreciated your focus on all three of those and not just the one richer part that I feel far too often is sensationalized. And to your point, we need money. Money makes life easier. It absolutely does. But you really do a good job talking about the, the latter part of the happier and wiser. So thank you so much. Where can people find your book, your website, or more information about yourself? Yeah, first, thank you so much. I, I really appreciate you spending this time with me and, and allowing me to drone on. It's no, I appreciate it. No, it's been great. I, I have a website, williambreenwrites.com. I'm on Twitter where I'm relatively active and williambreen72. I'm on LinkedIn. People are welcome to connect with me. And I, I, I do try and keep in touch with people because I very much enjoy the interaction with readers and the fact that we're we're all on this journey together. And it's not, it's not like I've figured all this stuff out and, and I've cracked it now. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I'm like this, this wise sage living in a state of equanimity and, and abundance. It's like I'm losing the plot the whole time. Uh -huh. And so um, I like the fact that people are writing to me and saying, you should read this and you should, you know, and this bit had a real impact on me. And what should I be reading on this? And it's, it's nice. We're all, we're all kind of on this journey together. And I, I feel very much like that with someone like Arnold Vandenberg. He said to me, um, said to me, I'll be working on self-improvement until the day that I die. <laughs> and that's kind of lovely. You, you, you want to be coming from this place where you're totally happy and appreciative and grateful for what you have, but you're also trying to become more all the time. And so it's, it's this sort of contradictory state in which, which you're like, yeah, you're, you feel your sense of abundance, but you're also like, no, let me become more. Let me keep improving, keep learning more, keep working on myself. And, and that's, a, that's, a, that's another great, great influence of Arnold's because then, then you see, yeah, I can't stop. It's, a, it's an ongoing process. And so, so yeah, for, for me, that's a great inspiration. I, I just appreciate your willingness to share your wisdom. And I, I feel like you're a very humbled individual as you share it. And uh, when you say two people reach out to you, uh, you know, I just reached out to you and uh, I was wondering if you have <laughs> some of these billionaire men or whomever is corresponding with you. If my name's beside Charlie Munger and you decide to pick, <laughs> to pick my email. Thank you. No, it's a pleasure. <laughs> and I, I don't know. I think um, if people are sincere and they've, read stuff and they're thinking about it and they're grappling with the same problems. I think, I think you kind of sense it. And so I, I like the fact that it was, it was clear that you were wrestling with these issues. You were thinking about it yourself. And so I'm really happy to chat. If someone's grappling really earnestly with this question, how to build a more meaningful and abundant life and how to become more sharing, how to become more resilient and how to become financially independent and secure. And so I, I, I don't know, those are, those are wonderful things. And I, that, I, I like the fact that we're part of this tribe that's working on this stuff. And 
I, I don't know, everyone always complains about things like Twitter and social media and stuff. And I actually kind of love the fact that you're able to build this tribe of people that are working on the same issues and trying to crack the same code. And I, I, I think we can, we can help each other a lot in doing that. And so, yeah, I love the fact that, you know, this voice comes out of, out of nowhere <laughs> and says, yeah, I'd love to book and can we talk? And you're like, okay, yep. And just yeah. the assumption that we're part of the same tribe and that we're here to help each other. And that's pretty cool. And it's easy to focus on the negative stuff about social media, but, but the building of a tribe of people who are looking to help each other and grow, that, that's, that's pretty cool. Yes, I, I definitely agree. Well, thank you so much. I really, really do appreciate your time today. Thanks, my pleasure. Thank you for tuning in this week to the Most Hated F Word podcast. And special thanks to William for chatting with me about his new book. I highly suggest you grab a copy as this book is really insightful. Until next week, have yourself a good one and take care.